It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. For the first time since 2003, we'll see a color other than purple in Salem. We'll see John Carroll in the semifinals for the first time since 2002. And we could see one conference with two teams in the Stag Bowl for the first time since 1978. But uh, we're getting uh, ahead of ourselves just a bit with that one as we talk about Week 14, otherwise known as National Quarterfinal Weekend. Thanks for joining us on the Around the Nation podcast, sponsored by the City of Salem, host of Stag Bowl 44. More information at SalemChampionships.com. And the last time, let's see, we had a regular season rematch in the national semifinals. That was 2007. Mary Harden-Baylor and Whitewater faced off for a second time. Uh, Whitewater won the first meeting 41-14 and won the second 16-7. And that's probably the least important stat we could cite regarding the upcoming UW Oshkosh and John Carroll rematch. Instead, we'll get you caught up with people who saw each of them play this weekend and have seen them play multiple times this season. And uh, Keith, suffice it to say... We're in for a lot of intrigue, these national semifinals. Uh, when I was looking back, I was thinking the last time I felt like this going into a semifinal weekend might have been 2001. We had a Stag Bowl rematch with uh, Mount Union against St. John's. We had Bridgewater hosting Rowan in the other national semifinal, and uh, hopefully everybody's clock operates correctly. Oh, boo. <laughs> but, yeah, here we are this deep in the postseason, and uh, Wisconsin Whitewater's out, St. Thomas is out, and Linfield and Wesley have been out for eight days. So the big takeaway from this weekend is that Division Three is no longer a one- or two-team show at the top. John Carroll and Wisconsin Oshkosh have risen to give us a pair of new faces and at least one new stag ball participant. And if Mary Harden Baylor beats Mount Union this weekend, it'll break through to Salem for the first time since 2004. They've been knocking on that door quite a while. And, of course, Mount Union hasn't missed a stag bowl since that year either. Yeah, and it hasn't just been the stag bowl, which has been tough to crack. Over the past 10 years, only 10 programs have even played the national semifinals. Uh, Mount Union, of course, was in all 10 of those from 2006 to 2015. Whitewater played in nine. Wesley was in five of them. Mary Harden Baylor in four. Linfield and St. Thomas played in three. Bethel was in twice. St. John Fisher, North Central, and UW Oshkosh in one of those apiece. As you can see, those are the, the power conferences, and, and the quarterfinal weekend is really when you get some of the best games uh, over the course of the season, some of the most memorable games. Uh, I believe it was our friend Wally Wabash who tweeted uh, over the weekend that national quarterfinal weekend is his favorite one of the season. And after higher-ranked teams in our poll started the playoffs 22-2, and home teams went 19-5, and there were three road victories and two upsets in quarterfinal weekend. Uh, number six, John Carroll, went. Uh, they beat the, the second-ranked Warhawks on the road. Uh, number four, Wisconsin Oshkosh, they beat the third-ranked Tommies on the road. And Mount Union went on the road and combined with Alfred for 115 points uh, in upstate New York. So all in all, not a bad round. Entertaining. Uh, I guess our friend's name is Greg Thomas, but his Twitter handle is Wally Wabash. So however you want to refer to him, uh, it was one way or the other. I think of... I, I try very hard to think of him as a person rather than just as a Twitter handle, but you know how that goes. So, yeah, talking about those uh, couple of upsets, I still feel pretty good about how the top 25 performed this postseason, especially when you compare ours to the coaches poll. Uh, we posted this on Twitter on Saturday night, but I, th I think it bears repeating. It's uh, our number one, number four, number six, and number seven teams will all advance to the national semifinals in the AFCA poll. Those teams are 2, 5, 10, and 8. Don't think that John Carroll doesn't notice that the coaches poll still ranked Mountain Union ahead even after John Carroll won that head-to-head -head game. 
Um, and one more thing. I know uh, Keith and I have raved about this bracket from the get-go, but I think it bears repeating. The latest reminder that we actually have it fairly good these days comes when you look at the game times coming up for the national semifinals. It used to be we had both semifinals played at the same time or maybe an hour apart. It used to be that the so-called national coverage was me and Keith or Frank Rossi or Gordon Mann and the like calling games on NCAA.com. And that's all well and good, and we enjoyed doing that. But having the game staggered three and a half hours apart with ESPN3 on site and perhaps most importantly, replay review makes us a much better thing for Division Three. Yeah, if only we can extend that out to quarterfinal weekend or maybe to the entire playoffs. There certainly were some plays in the postseason that we would have liked to see a replay review on. And it's it's a little weird for teams to uh, to not have that. And then suddenly this week that'll be in play. That takes a little getting used to. But I guess it's a it's a bonus of being able to play into uh, into the you know 15th week of the season, 14 games deep. Um I, and I love the staggering. The, the the staggered starts is great. And this is actually a time of the year, I think, when people would watch both games. You know, you can you, you're maybe a fan of one of the four teams that's still playing or you're a fan of somebody who's whose season has been over for a week or several weeks now. But this is one of those times where if you're a Division three head anywhere in the division, you, you kind of stop what you're doing on Saturday, take in both games. It'll be uh, John Carroll at, at Wisconsin Oshkosh first. Mary Harden Baylor uh, at 3:30 Central, 4:30 Eastern time. After that, the Mountain Union will be down there, and that's um, I don't know which one's the better game. I guess the 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 second game has a little bit more name recognition nationally, but they're both going to be a good contest. Yeah, we will talk about uh, that coming up in a little bit, also. In fact, this is the weekend, Keith, I think, where we pick up even non-Division three fans. If you're not going to be watching the Army-Navy game, there's not a whole lot uh, of other college football unless you uh, you know start looking at uh, games outside of Division one FBS. That's a, that's a good point. I didn't really think about that because I, I feel like in a lot of ways we're such an insular – because you and I, we spend our Saturdays following only Division three, but most folks – watch all different levels of college football. So you're right, that is actually a, a fine point. And if you're jumping into D3 at this weekend, you couldn't pick a better weekend. You're going to see four teams that have physical talent, that are um, they, they they handle themselves well on the field. They'll throw a bunch of different looks at you. And, and as we talked several times on the podcast, everybody left playing pretty great defense right now. Indeed. So we will talk about all four of those uh, teams. We'll talk about the four games we just saw, and we'll be back in just a moment with our game balls and then a, a run-through of all of that. But before we go to break, I'd like to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, hosts of Stag Bowl 44. Salem, Virginia is a city that has had to stock up on a lot of the color purple over the past couple of decades, but they'll be searching for something new to wear uh, in fact, uh, I, I can't bring my traditional purple shirt and purple tie. I don't know what to wear to the Stag Bowl for the first time in more than a decade. I have to break out some other neutral color. But, uh, Keith, this week it seems to, important to talk about the literal road to Salem. There are lots of ways for people to get to Salem, Virginia. Yeah, usually I battle the tractor trailers driving down I-81. But for most of the rest of you, especially if you'll be coming from Wisconsin or Texas or Ohio, um, the, the obvious choice is to fly directly into Roanoke Regional Airport, where there are nonstops from Chicago, Atlanta, New York, Philly, and D.C., along with Charlotte, Orlando, St. Pete. Um, you could, you could cook. if you really want to do the 81 thing and, and risk your life with the tractor trailers, you can fly into Dulles and, and drive down from Washington. It's about 
four hours. You could fly into Greensboro, North Carolina, take a 70-minute drive north. You could fly into Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, Charlotte is is a three-hour drive, but a lot of flight possibilities flying into Charlotte. So again, if you're coming from Texas, Wisconsin, or Ohio to uh, to watch your team, your son, your alma mater in the Stag Bowl, flying into Roanoke or, or one of the surrounding airports, uh, you have a lot of options. Yeah, I've flown into Roanoke. Um, I've flown into Dulles a lot. Uh, I used to live near Dulles Airport as well, so I've done that 81 drive a lot. I'm not sure if it's four hours. I might uh, might be able to get might be able to get through it in 3:40 or even 3:30. Um, I've been liking Greensboro lately. Greensboro is where I'm flying in this year. It is a, a relatively easy drive, and uh, Greensboro connects to a, a fair number of places too. It's a, it's kind of an unsung way to get to Salem, Virginia. Uh, unlike say taking uh, four games on the road and then. Uh, trying to win down in Belton, Texas. That would be a very unsung way to get to Salem. It's time for game balls, and I'm giving mine to Johnny Egan, the UW Oshkosh strong safety who picked off three passes from Alex Fenske in the Titans' 34-31 win at St. Thomas. Two of them came in the first quarter as Oshkosh built up a 21-7 lead, and one of them came with a minute eight left to seal the victory. Fenske threw five picks and fumbled once to boot in the loss. Tommy's turned the ball over eight times. And Oshkosh didn't turn it over at all. Uh, I want to do the eight turnovers. Come on, Pat. Yeah, sorry, no, man. No, I'm just kidding. That's fine. Um, how about Reggie Wilson and Baylor Mullins for Mary Harden Baylor? Wilson had 15 tackles and two block kicks that directly accounted for eight points when the game with Wheaton was close, and uh, he threw in a 31-yard punt return. Mullins, by the way, he fell on the punt that Wilson blocked uh, for early third-quarter touchdown, plus he had seven tackles, five punts. He is also the punter uh, as well as a linebacker, and he uh, added an interception. Uh, Mullins is listed as a safety uh, and, and Wilson a corner. But they're both more like uh, jack-of-all-trades, super hybrids, and a big reason why the Crusaders were able to withstand a very game-weaten team. Crew back, monster back, super back, whatever they're calling them these days. Yeah, you're playing that that four-two-five defense. Uh, they they let those guys roam. And uh, and the cool thing about Mary Harden Baylor, of course, is uh, when they find someone who who has an extra skill, you know, they're going to find a way to get them on the field. And so Baylor Mullins uh, against Wheaton. They were doing kind of a a sweep punt where he would start to run to his right and and you know look and say eh you know maybe if I can run this for a first down I won't kick it and then he ended up uh, punting most of the the punts rugby style. Fedler on to punt the crew coming after him some pressure right up the middle Richie Reggie Wilson, Wilson blocks it and Baylor Mullins is going to scoop it up in the end zone and Mary Harden Baylor has a special teams touchdown with 13:51 to go in the third quarter the lead is 16 to 3 Reggie Wilson cheated up came right through blew by an up back blocked that one and then Baylor Mullins was the only man who could scoop it up fell on it in the end zone and the crew has another touchdown on the board uh, they had two of them clean but Reggie Miller what great eye contact on the ball he just took it right off his feet and who missed the reliability of being at the right place at the right time Baylor Miller Baylor Mullins runs it in Keith you track this game pretty closely between Mary Harden Baylor and Wheaton why don't you talk us through it a little bit sure I mean the the big uh takeaway from this game for anyone who didn't watch any of it if you were uh really invested in, in one of the other games going on at the same time um is that it was much closer than the final score indicated. It was a 38-16 final 
for Mary Harden Baylor. The crew tacked on one of those touchdowns pretty late. And uh, at halftime, it was a 10-3 game. It was scoreless at the end of the first quarter. Wheaton matched up well with Mary Harden Baylor in some ways. Um, defensively, Wheaton, Wheaton um, that defensive line, you know, they weren't getting blown off the ball. I, I thought, you know, a lot of times Mary Harden Baylor just physically is better than the other team. I didn't think that was the case. And so uh, it was a very kind of plodding, methodical first half for both teams. And even the the two times Mary Harden Baylor did score the touchdown, the field goal, they uh, they they got turnovers um, that uh, that set up those scores. So they didn't drive the length of the field on Wheaton at all. And Wheaton had a little bit of success moving the ball, but just couldn't couldn't run it at all. Now, the 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 big, I guess, news story out of this game, the strange thing and, and maybe something that Wheaton will uh, will live to regret or, or you know, I'm sure they'd never say this uh, publicly, but they uh, for whatever reason, they go uh, with Johnny Peltz at quarterback to make the start. Uh, in this game, um, Andrew Bowers had, had been starting most of the season, and Peltz really sh- showed some flashes passing the ball, uh, finished 28-48, 284 yards, two touchdowns, but the three interceptions really, really hurt them. Again, those those 10 points um, were set up in the, the first half points were set up by Peltz interception, and then he threw a pick in the third quarter. So the, the way Mary Harden Baylor blew this game open was a 21-point third quarter in which they run only six plays. Um, you heard the block punt highlight. That's how Mary Harden Baylor gets on the board. That was right after uh, Wheaton's first drive. Then um, Wheaton comes down and scores and uh, three and out. Uh, they get the ball back and getting ready to drive again. And then Raylon Hickey, uh, defensive back for Mary Harden Baylor, steps in front of a pass. Uh, Pelt's pass takes it back 25 yards for a touchdown. And then when Mary Harden Baylor gets the ball back at the end of the quarter, they're looking at a third and eight, and uh, Blake Jackson drops back, and it kind of little it seemed deceptive, you know, it looked like it was going to be a short out, and then all of a sudden he just cocks it deep. He had he hits Bryce Wilkerson in stride for an 80-yard touchdown, and uh, Mary Harden Baylor suddenly blows the game open. But in all honesty, it was a it was a tight game for most of the way. Mary Harden Baylor again just ran those six plays, but managed to get three touchdowns out of the third quarter. Thunder shows blitz and backs out of it. Jackson with great protection. He's going to throw it down the field, trying to get it to Bryce Wilkerson. Wilkerson has it, and Wilkerson's going to go. He outruns Marcus Smith, and that is going to be an 80-yard touchdown pass from Blake Jackson to Bryce Wilkerson. Coach, you wanted him to throw it down the field. They threw it down the field, took full advantage of the wind at their back, and Bryce Wilkerson just showed his speed right there. Unbelievable throw, getting it down, and I'm glad he's throwing with the wind a little bit right there, and he got a little bit of help, and Bryce did a great job staying on his feet when the defender had him covered, but then he made a mistake of trying to look back, and Bryce got a little bit of step on him and just took it all the way. Well, well done, and was extremely needed. We took advantage of that one-on-one with the speed outside. Nice job. Yeah, Keith, Andrew Bowers, uh, broken ribs suffered in the second-round game. Very hush-hush about it all week. Uh, heard some rumblings about it, I think, maybe on Friday, and then uh, indeed got uh, you know someone to at least confirm it for me off the record good enough to tweet it about an hour before the game started on Saturday. But, uh, you know, we talked early in the season about uh, Bowers and Pelts and Pelts was so had had a significant amount of success last year uh, at quarterback for the Thunder and uh, Bowers was struggling out of the gate. Eventually, kind of you know things kind of picked up, um, but I, I thought 
actually one of the big things I was looking forward to on Saturday was to see how Sola Oleteju, the big Wheaton running back, did against Mary Harden Baylor, and it seemed like he uh, struggled just as much as pretty much everybody else has against them. Yeah, and, and I would, wouldn't put it all on him. He had 14 carries for four yards. They did try to get the run game going, um, and, and that is just a case of that great Mary Harden Baylor defensive line, and really the entire Mary Harden Baylor defense. They were they were outstanding against the run. Less than one yard per carry for Wheaton on uh, on Saturday. Uh, twenty six attempts, twenty two rushing yards. Mary Harden Baylor forty attempts, hundred seventy nine rushing yards. So Mary Harden Baylor they didn't blow the doors off running the ball, but uh, four point five yards a carry, a lot more normal than than point eight. Uh, Tedrick Smith, they the, the uh, and Hasten Adams the two. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor defensive lineman who may be household names at this point. Uh, those guys didn't have a ton of tackles. Smith had a nice sack, um, but it was really a, a team effort defensively. They got a the uh, Mary Harden Baylor had a lot of good run support from uh, from the safeties. Their their defensive backs tackled well, and even when Wheaton did get the ball go uh, the ball moving, uh, Pelts did did get up and down the field a little bit with it. Had some nice throws. One I could think of on the sideline into double coverage, about you know 20 yards down the field, just a bullet, and you could see why they like pelts. Although when you explain the reason why Bowers uh, was out, it explains why they didn't relieve him after the three interceptions as well. Um, I, I thought Wheaton, you know, offensively, not being able to run the ball really hurt them a lot. And one other thing that that did hurt Wheaton was uh, losing Chase Greenley, their uh, all-conference defensive end. In the first half, um, targeting call, he basically led with his helmet at the end of a play on a Mary Harden-Baylor play who was going to the ground or on the ground at the time, and the officials confirmed it at halftime. So they lost one of their best defensive players, and that's a really – it's already a disappointing way to end your season and, and or to end a career, and that's a really d- disappointing way to do it when you don't even get to play the full game. Let me ask you about one more guy for Wheaton. Uh, who I got to see play last year, but I didn't get to see so much this year. Zach Lindquist, the tight end. Yeah, uh, didn't didn't stand out much. He had uh, five catches for 30 yards. Uh, the guy who really stood out in the passing game, to be honest, was Trey Hanley. Had eight catches, 103 yards, two touchdowns. Both of the touchdowns were over the middle. Um, really strong throws by Pelts into, not into coverage, but uh, – when Wheaton got the ball moving, Mary Harden Baylor dropped into zones. Um, Wheaton was smart about sitting down in the zones or taking advantage of uh, when they were in man, they took advantage of the slant routes. So um, Hanley had some room over the middle and he wasn't afraid to uh, to go into the teeth of that Mary Harden Baylor defense. But he was pretty much him and, and Chase White were the uh, the only guys who were, who were getting the ball down the field at all for Wheaton. So defensively i thought wheaton matched up well and they hung in there for a while um markeith miller finished with uh, 27 carries for 142 yards rushing um but he had a 37 yard touchdown run late in the game so he ba- basically took him more than 25 carries to get over 100 yards blake jackson they bottled him up pretty well um running the ball as well as passing so i mean if you're looking next week or if you're a mountain union fan listen to this um, Mary Harden Baylor wasn't dominant by by any means, and there's certainly reason to believe that a defense could um, limit them on Saturday or you know two weeks from now if they happen to play that long. Um, but I think credit to the Wheaton defense it was a very very solid defense, 
And, uh, you know, you may see Mary Harden Baylor have a lot more success offensively uh, later in the postseason. And now we're going to welcome in Jeff Sapanik, the uh, reporter for the Alliance Review. Been covering the Purple Raiders for, I don't know, quite some time. I'll have to ask you about that here in just a second. Uh, but uh, it's been an interesting uh, postseason for Mount Union, and yet here they uh, remain uh, the going back to the national semifinals. Yeah, it's, um, obviously did not use the pun, but it's been a different road for them, you know, not being at Mount Union Stadium and makes it for a long three weeks. It seems like it's been longer than it would have been being at home. But um, I think the team has done a phenomenal job handling all the adversity from a regular season loss that's become a rarity at a, in Alliance. And, you know, they've responded well with three road wins. Yeah, and, and tell us about, you know, how the – you, I mean, you've mentioned how the teams reacted. How has the team kind of progressed over the course of the uh, the season? You know, I've, there's been a lot of talk, of course, about how young this Mount Union team was, or at least how inexperienced in terms of uh, starting experience. And, of course, the whole uh, quarterback situation, which enthralled us for the, the first several weeks of the season. But kind of take us a little bit through the arc or the progression of the Purple Raiders this year. Um, you know, well, yeah, you're right. There were a lot of questions, more so than probably a normal Mount Union team has at the start of the year. They started with Luke Foreman, who, you know, he was an early enrollee at quarterback that came in last winter. So he had a little bit of an edge on the other two guys. And then it, from my understanding, what I was told by Coach Karras is all three of them, Luke Foreman, D'Angelo Fulford, and Don Davis were very close in the competition. And I, just, I think Foreman here, being around the program a little bit longer, the early enrollee got him the head start there. And then, you know, him and Fulford kind of alternating the first four or five games. And then, you know, Fulford suffered a little bit of an injury. Foreman got nicked up when they went down to Capitol. They inserted Don Davis, and they've been riding him ever since. Uh, defensively, probably one of the youngest Monument teams they probably have ever had. Maybe rival to 2013 which was Coach Vince Karras' first team in terms of just starting experience. They had guys who had played a lot of games, but they didn't really start. So there was a, a learning curve that needed to be established out there and just the familiarity with getting to play with each other, knowing who's on your right side, left side, how they're going to react. And, you know, they had some tests at North Carolina Wesleyan. Heidelberg gave them a decent test. BW, you know, had an early lead on them. And then ultimately the regular season finale with John Carroll was a tremendous football game for both teams. And then having to go on the road, I think they've really bonded well with, you know, all the travel, staying in the hotels, just getting to know each other more as people and football players. And I think it's helped them come together on the field. Talk about the defense being young on Saturday, obviously gave up a, a significant number of points. Um, you know, how does the, how does the defense react? They gave up 45 to Alfred. Uh, you know, Alfred threw for a lot. Tyler Johnson, of course, is, is probably one of the top quarterbacks in Division Three, so that's a significant test. But you know, what does the team kind of take away from that? You know, I asked Charlie Deere at the post-game press conference about that. Just being in a game like that, do you kind of get down when you see the yardage and the points? And he said, sometimes you have to tip your cap to the other team. He said, very experienced quarterback who extended a lot of plays and the defense was doing its job for those, you know, three, four seconds. I'm sure Keith can tell you about being a defensive back. Just, you know, you have a limited amount of time to stay with these guys. You hope to get the play done. But Johnson was doing a good job extending it to six, seven, eight seconds. And, you know, coverage breakdowns happened over that time. And he was able to hit some big plays. But they didn't seem discouraged by it. 
you know, I'm sure that obviously they're not happy. You don't want to give up, you know, 500 yards and 45 points, but they weren't as discouraged. I thought from just following them, they were probably more discouraged when the situation like that happened with Wesley in 2013 than they were yesterday. And Bradley Mitchell also, you know, on the offensive side said, he said, we never lost confidence in our defense. We knew they were going to make some plays and they got the three turnovers there right in the first quarter that kind of made it a 28-7 game. And I think that really forced, um, excuse me, Alfred to kind of abandon its running game altogether and end up throwing for almost 70 times. Um, you mentioned Mitchell. Mitchell's a guy who's obviously been in the mix, and at times he's okay. been the primary back uh, ever since he was a freshman. You know, o- over the course of last season, maybe that uh, tailed away a little bit. And now he's the primary back again. How is uh, how has his game changed? How is he elevated? Um, I think he got healthy first of all. I think last year he suffered a a foot and an ankle injury, which you know, if no, nobody is familiar with how he runs, he's a very shifty, cutting back who had the low center of gravity. So to have those two injuries, that really hindered his. And unfortunately, Manion was have, able to have Logan Nemeth step forth and carry them to that postseason run last year. And I think the biggest thing for Bradley is I think he just got healthy. And then that's really allowed him to, you know, just kind of continue to improve. He's been very steady. And it was, you know, the second – he became everybody's focal point from probably – Maybe around that Capitol game, which coincided with Don Davis taking over as quarterback, teams really started in the regular season putting seven, eight guys in the box, forcing Mount Union to beat you throwing the football. And the receiving core, you know, usually we're accustomed to there being some, you know, pretty big names or at least one or two key guys that you can really point out in that uh, Purple Raiders uh, receiving game. But uh, it, it seems like it's more of a, you know, a, a bunch of equals or a cast of guys who don't necessarily stand out. What's, uh, you know, are we missing out? Who are we missing out on? I think, honestly, I think it's a very deep and very solid group. You don't have the Pierre Garçon, the Cecil Shorts, the Jasper Collins, like the one super superstar, but you have a lot of very good receivers. You have the experience with guys like Tim Kennedy and Zach Harrington, who are seniors. You have guys like Jared Ruth, who he's a junior, but only a sophomore in playing field, you know, coming off an injury. And one of their most experienced receivers, Jordan Hargrove, got hurt about the seventh, sixth, seventh week in the season, and his season's over because of his injury. So they lost probably what they were figuring on is their best receiver coming back that hope in there. Maybe they're holding out hope that they can get him back, but he hasn't come back to this stage. So, I mean, they've done a great job adjusting. They got freshmen like Justin Hill. There's another youngster, DeMarco Haynes, that's been real good for them. So they have a mixture of experience and youth with that. I know that uh, obviously there is a, and and I know that they know that there's another game left to be played before this even becomes a possibility. But you know, how has uh, Mount Union kind of observed the similar progress through the bracket by John Carroll with that uh, Week 11 loss? You know, there's obviously an opportunity for a uh, for a Mount Union team to do what it's never really had to do before: avenge a regular season loss. Yeah. Um... It hasn't, nothing has been said publicly, whether or not I'm sure in this day and age it would be naive to think that they don't know what's going on, probably more so the players, that they, you know, just they're friends with each other from the schools and they know what's going on. But, you know, obviously without looking ahead, I'm sure that's a situation that if it comes to fruition, that they would absolutely relish the opportunity to, you know, get a crack at a team that handed you your only loss to that point. 
and in the way of that, of course, is uh, Mary Harden Baylor, a team which you know have is one of the few teams who have beaten Mountain Union in the playoffs before Salem over the course of I know before almost before any of these players uh, ever put on pads or a helmet or anything like that. But uh, the the team, how does the team looking forward to uh, what they have coming up again against Mary Harden Baylor on Saturday? I think first, I think they're excited to keep playing football. I think, you know, they haven't really, they've kind of embraced the whole going on the road slash underdog role that they've kind of been thrown into, which, you know, that's typical when you have to play three road games. You can't expect, regardless of being Mountain Union, Whitewater, Mary Harden, Baylor, whatever, you can't expect to, you know, just be, oh, well, we're going to take them because that's who they are. I mean, it's tough to win games on the road, especially as the playoffs progress, and they know they're going to have another dog fight you know, right ahead of them, and, you know, they're very battle-tested with the opponents they face. You know, this will be essentially, counting the John Carroll game, this will probably be their fifth straight kind of playoff-quality game that they're played, and I think they're ready for the task. And you can see more of Jeff Zapanik at at Jeff Zup Review on Twitter or at the-review.com, the uh, website of the Alliance Review and Alliance Ohio. Keith, uh, welcoming you back in here. Um you watched a little bit of this uh, Mountain Union uh, Alfred game as well. Just a uh, a crazy offensive performance, and we all knew that uh, Tyler Johnson was a was a talented guy, but uh, you know, put up a, they put up a lot of points on Mountain Union. Yeah, the the more than the points. Well, step back a second. Forty five points sounds like a lot, except when the other team has seventy. So at at some point, Mountain Union uh, got ahead in this game. Alfred realized not having a lot of success running the ball. Tyler Johnson's their best player. They have plenty of good receivers, decent offensive line, so they might as well just line it up and throw it, and it worked to a large degree. Mountain Union, um, Alfred got on the board first with the interception of Dom Davis. Uh, Nicholas Milgate took it back for the 7-0 lead. Mountain Union scored the next 28 points. So Alfred spends a lot of the game catching up uh, because they were down 28-7, but it worked. They got back to 35-33 at one point in the game, and then uh, every time Mountain Union would try to stretch the lead to 9-16, or you know, the score started getting wacky because Alfred um, missed extra points. Um, every time Mountain Union started to pull away, Alfred started to uh, to to was able to remain in the game um, with Tyler Johnson basically pushing it down the field. And uh, if you just you know, if you didn't see the final score and you looked at the yardage totals in this game, Alfred uh, throws for 534 yards. The teams were basically even in time of possession, turnovers, and total offense. But Mount Union dominated running the ball. And that's kind of the where we thought the advantage might be in this game, um, running the ball. But the but the, the difference is so stark. 322 rushing yards for Mount Union, 37 for Alfred. And 37 seems like a lot considering their number one. Well, their number one running back, of course, has been injured for uh, since the out the entire playoffs. Casey Bright only ran the ball four times, um, just even being on the board uh, in terms of rushing. Sometimes it's difficult to do against Mountain Union. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I thought as I looked at this and looked at his performance, uh, we're talking about Tyler Johnson, who was 36 to 37. You mentioned the 534 yards passing, 577 yards of total offense. Um, all the voting for all region is already in. Technically, or at least theoretically, the only thing that uh, it's voted on is, um, is regular season stats. So uh, this is a, a great performance that may not be reflected in all region, but it would be silly of us to ignore it when it comes to making all American picks. Yeah. And, and 
he didn't just have uh, the 36 for 67, 534 yards, five touchdown passes, no interceptions. He was the uh, the basically the leading rusher, and you know he saved them in in the two previous rounds too. So he uh, he spread the ball around against um, Mountain Union, and I think now if you look back at the three quarterbacks Mountain Union's faced, um, Shane Sweeney. Jonathan Germano and Tyler Johnson, yeah. guys who all three of those guys will be somewhere represented in all region. And I'm saying this as someone who has no knowledge of, <laughs> of the, uh, who is actually on region. I'm yeah. uh, right. I'm just speculating. But all three of those guys were able to pass the ball on Mountain Union as well. Germano, 355 yards. Um, I don't I don't know Shane Sweeney's totals off top. But if we're looking for one weakness, maybe in Mountain Union, it's that you can throw the ball on them. You can't, you, you certainly, Alfred certainly couldn't run it. And, you know, before we get too lost in all the, the things that other teams have done well against Mount Union in this postseason, let's give a lot of credit to Mount Union for withstanding every Alfred surge in this in this game and, uh, and pulling away, really, in the second half. This is now the fifth time since we've been doing this that Mount Union's hit 70 in a quarterfinal or semifinal <laughs> yeah. round game. Yeah. I was thinking about a couple of them that you and I have uh, suffered through, uh, sometimes together, sometimes separately. Yeah, and and sometimes they're somewhat entertaining, like as this one is. You know, Mountain Union eventually uh, hits seventy, but this game went into the fourth quarter at forty-two thirty-three. So it was a it was a nice back and forth game, and then Mountain Union put together an eleven-play drive early in the fourth quarter, get a, a kickoff return after Alfred comes back with a thirteen-play drive. So uh, Alfred cuts it back to 10 uh, at 49-39. Then Brian Groves takes the kickback uh, as Alfred onside kick, actually, and, and Groves picks it up and yeah. runs it back. And then uh, Mountain Union put together a couple more touchdown drives. Alfred threw a touchdown in there. But they didn't hit 70 until 53 seconds were left in the game. So it certainly wasn't a case of Mountain Union running up the score and then Alfred throwing the ball up and down the field at the end and piling up their stats. Alfred was in this game. At a point, and if you're a fan of the East Region or Empire Eight, and you're looking for a takeaway, you know that that is the takeaway that that Alfred's belonged on the same field as uh, as Mountain Union, even though that final score is uh, is kind of ugly. Well, let's look ahead to the semifinal game. And as you were talking about the quarterbacks uh, that Mountain Union has faced, it made me think. Um, you know, thinking about Tyler uh, Tyler Johnson, Blake Jackson being fairly similar. You know, both uh, playmakers who. Uh, playmakers with both with their legs and their arms uh you know you saw germano for johns hopkins up close i saw sweeney a couple weeks earlier sweeney's not as much a guy who would uh, who would run the ball but he certainly threw for a lot on uh, mountain union and, and just beginning to think a little bit about uh, that game which you're going to be at down in belton texas uh let's not say anything until the plane lands and i get into the stadium <laughs> all right yeah the- after last year yeah given what happened last year uh jonathan germano certainly a slippery quarterback um, who who bought himself a lot of time to throw in the second round against Mountain Union. Tyler Johnson, we know what he can do. Blake Jackson is similar to those guys in a lot of ways, but what won't be similar is that Mary Harden Baylor is going to have a little more success running the ball than Hobart, Johns Hopkins, or Alfred did. Right now, Mary Harden Baylor, really good up front uh, offensively and really good, of course, at their defensive front. I think that's the matchup that excites me a little more. Mountain Union, the one place it does have some experience is on the offensive line. And now that you're 
you know, 13 games into the season. I guess everyone has a little bit of experience, but they they run the ball for for more than 300 yards against Alfred. Wheaton can't run the ball at all against Mary Harden Baylor, so that to me is where I see the big clash happening. And if Mary Harden, um, excuse me, if Mountain Union can't run at uh, on Mary Harden Baylor, uh, they may struggle. Uh, I'm uh, really interested in this matchup also because you know these two teams have played a couple of uh, great national semifinals. Uh, of course, you and I were there in 2004 when uh, when Mary Harden Baylor won in Alliance, Ohio, to go to the Stag Bowl. Uh, it was. Oh, now I'm um, now the years the years running together thing is beginning to get to me. What year was Walter it? Sharp, two thousand four. No, no, yeah, I'm already yeah Walter Sharp. I'm I'm moving on to the other one, the one which uh, in which Mary Harden Baylor led in the fourth quarter, and then uh, Mountain Union came uh, storming back to get to the Stag Bowl. So yeah, that was 2012. Uh, Mount, Mary Harden Baylor went to Alliance, played. Uh, that was in the dark, or at least the game ended uh, in the dark. So it must have been the late semifinal. Um, Mary Harden Baylor had a 28-14 lead in the second half of that game, uh, and it was tied at 28. And Mountain Union scores with five seconds left. They recovered the onside kick and and scored again. So they made it look like uh, it was 48-35 game, but really that was a tie game. Uh, until the the last snap from scrimmage, that was the Kevin Burke team and the Javis Jones, Mary Harden Baylor team, Ladero Bailey that that team, uh, pro- probably the best Mary Harden Baylor team that didn't break through to the Stag Bowl. And when you look at the history of the way uh, the the Purple Raiders and Crusaders have played, the two games they've played have been epic. And you know why not add a third one to the list? As far as we could figure out, too, Keith, this is the furthest that Mountain Union's uh, ever going to have traveled for a football game. Uh, not having pulled out the entire uh, map, but uh, traveling to UW Lacrosse in the 1996 playoffs was the farthest that I could find. Um, you know, without resorting to uh, to Google Maps, but uh, you know, Belton, Texas, a little bit further than that. I think what Mountain Union is doing, though, is something that. Pacific Lutheran has done. Linfield did it a few years ago. It's kind of familiar to some other programs. They've rallied around the, this idea of having to go on the road and win several games to get to Salem. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor had to do it in 2004. And and it, it's it, it's been a, a boost to those programs, you know, because you take it, you turn it into a rallying cry. And honestly, as a a college kid, it's kind of fun. You know, it's it. it the distractions of being at home are, are not there. You're just basically getting to travel to all these cool places. Oh, and play football with you know most of your best friends. So um, once you do that, and then you know the coaches are able to kind of sell it as a us against the world rallying cry type of thing. It, it, I think it works out really great. Mountain Union has uh, had three road tests, and I and I mean test is in each opponent was in the game at some point or led the game or was you know tied or whatever. Um, and Mountain Union found a way to win each one of those. And they're going to have to play their best game, better than they've played even the past three weeks and in past four weeks, if you count the the Week 11 game against John Carroll. They're going to have to play their best game to win down in Texas. But everything they've done so far is building towards that. So you could see it as a possibility. And now joining us to talk about the St. Thomas UW Oshkosh game, we're joined by Eric Bookinger. Eric's a reporter for the New London Press Star and the Clintonville Tribune Gazette. But more importantly to us... He writes around the central region for D3Hoops.com and has been a longtime contributor to D3Sports.com. Covered the game in St. Paul on Saturday. And Eric, thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Pat. It's my first time on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. 
Well, it's and it's been a a great postseason, but a very interesting game on Saturday. The first thing uh, you know, you look at when you look at the box score of this game is you know St. Thomas uh, turning the ball over eight times and yet only losing by three points. How did the Tommies kind of limit the damage? Right. You look at you look at eight turnovers. You think that would be pretty much a blowout, but uh, actually most of the turnovers that St. Thomas had in that game were in Oshkosh territory. So. It was essentially more like a punt because Oshkosh always had a long field to go to most of the, for most of those turnovers. Yeah, and it's uh, you know it, it it was just an interesting kind of um, kind of contrast, I guess. Uh, you know, first of all, there was a game earlier in the postseason in which you know Monmouth turned the ball over nine times and uh, Co only won by a touchdown. Similarly here, but uh, I, I feel like um, this is something that. Uh, is a testament to the St. Thomas defense, right? I mean, we saw St. Thomas play real well defensively over the course of the season. And as you said, obviously, they also had a long field to work with on a lot of occasions, but I have to feel that played into it. Definitely, yes. They forced Oshkosh to punt in every, sing- every single uh, possession they had in the third quarter and, and the first one in the fourth. So, uh, And also, obviously, that also, also a block punt for, Steven, or for St. Thomas as well. And most of those are three and outs, so Oshkosh really struggled with the field position battle in the second half. Uh, early in the game, obviously, Oshkosh uh, jumps out to a big lead. Why don't you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, first of all, they really Oshkosh was uh, they marched right down the field in their first drive. Uh, Dylan Hecker took a one-yard direct snap for on a fourth and goal play. Uh, after St. Thomas came, they came back with a score in their opening drive as well. Then Menko, or, uh, Sam Menkowski, the wide receiver for Oshkosh, grabbed a... Uh, in a nice catch and run uh, that put put Oshkosh up fourteen to seven, and then the very next play of the uh, St. Thomas first drive was their first turnover of the game, um, and Oshkosh took advantage. And then the very next play after that to take a twenty-one to seven lead in the first quarter, so they took advantage of that first play after the turnover. And then, uh, yes, St. Thomas uh, another interception after that, and then uh, another, and then on their next possession, a fumble gave Oshkosh a. 24-7 lead after a field goal, and St. Thomas kept off the scoring the second half with a field goal as well in the second quarter. Uh, big day for Mankowski. You mentioned uh, the that uh, first initial uh, catch, uh, touchdown catch and run, had three D- TD catches on the day. Johnny Egan, three interceptions, including uh, one that basically sealed the game up. Uh, a couple of big performers for the Titans on Saturday. Definitely, yeah. Sam Mankowski, he's a uh, he's a highlight reel waiting to happen. He's uh, he actually was, was injured for quite a few games, and last week was his first game back in a, in about a little more than a month. So having him back in the lineup is huge. He had three big plays. Uh, he had t- three touchdowns, and all were at least uh, around thirty th- high thirties, low forties, or how many yards he had in those plays. And he can beat you deep. He can beat you with a slant, like like he did in that play that we're talking about. He beat beat some guys deeper later in the game as well. So he's a really big weapon weapon for them, and uh, it just seemed like Johnny Egan was just in the right place at the right time for most of those most of those interceptions. They had a few, uh, you know, definitely one of them just an overthrow that he was just in the right right spot and he made the catch. And yeah, he was he was huge in that game, especially with that that uh, game ending interception. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot on the podcast about uh, Dylan Hecker, and we've talked about Devin Linsenmeyer. Um, but, you know, we haven't really delved uh, too much into how they use Hecker. Uh, and you mentioned he took a direct snap, and, you know, that seems to be something they uh, they do on a, a fairly regular basis. Definitely, yeah. That's def- that's something he's been doing since he got here in Oshkosh. He, 
they do that direct snap, like the the wildcat, I guess, if you want to keep calling it that. Back in the NFL, did that a few years or several years ago, but uh, yeah, it's, it definitely works for them. So why not keep doing it? And tell us about uh, Brett Casper as a quarterback. What kind of style is he? What does he uh, What does he like to do? What does he do well? As a pocket passer, he uh, he can throw pretty. He can throw pretty deep. Um, he started off this game really well. He's actually completed his first or seven of his first eight passes. But uh, he kind of after and last week he didn't he wasn't, didn't do fair or all that well he threw for just just 97 yards but uh, this week he as I said he threw or he completed seven of his first eight passes and then kind of I think the defense from St Thomas really kind of dialed in on him as he he only completed six of his next 18 so uh, he struggled in the second half but uh, definitely in the first half he was on fire. Uh, you know, Oshkosh, uh, you know, defensively, uh, they only gave up defensively uh, 24 of those 31 points. But, uh, you know, that's the, the most that uh, anybody scored on Oshkosh. I'm kind of looking back here just to make sure. Yeah, nobody scored uh, 31 on Oshkosh all season. W- what do you think? Uh, what are they talking about that they saw? What do they have to take away and uh, talk about this week? Well, yeah, like you said, they had gave 31 points, but uh, just the block punt makes it 24. But um, there was a there was one play that uh, gave Saint put Saint Thomas close a little closer, made it support twenty four to seventeen in the third quarter, where just a blown coverage, the, play, the wide receiver was wide open in the end zone and right at the goal line for the for the touchdown. Uh, obviously, needed a little more better communication with that play, but uh, I think just uh, they really bailed themselves out pretty well in, in this game with uh, so many opportunistic plays and just being in the right place at the right time. Like I said. And just some unforced unforced errors also for St. Thomas with a bad snap and a few fumbles as well. Well, let's talk about the Titans just kind of over the course of this season, right? I, you know, it's a team that comes in with pretty high expectations. You know, they've been contenders now for quite some time. Uh, this was not their first trip to the national quarterfinals, and in fact, uh, this won't be their first trip to the national semifinals either. But you know, where does the where does this Titans program kind of feel? I don't know. Does it feel? I don't even know how to describe this question, I guess, which makes it a bad question. Um, <laughs> but it, it kind of feels to me, I guess, I'll put my projection on it, and then you can uh, respond to that instead, um, that that kind of after this midseason swing where you know they lost on the, you know basically a last-minute play in the last minute at Wisconsin-Whitewater and maybe struggled a little bit offensively with Stevens Point, you know, they kind of figured things out against Platteville and have been really difficult to touch ever since. Yeah, this team does actually have a different feeling to them this year. I talked to one of the one of the sport, uh, the football beat writer for the Advanced Titan, uh, the UW Oshkosh student newspaper, and he said just going to practices and going and talking to the coach, uh, Coach Pat Cerrone, he said there's just a, just a different feeling from last year, and he he really thinks that uh, they just have a good uh, just a good chemistry with the team, and they just seem more relaxed. And because obviously, as you said, they've been here before. Uh, they were here in 2012, back when I was in back when I was uh, my freshman year actually in Oshkosh, and uh, just the fact that they've had su- success ever since then, I think they have they're pretty uh, they know what they're doing. They've been here before, and uh, they're pretty determined to get the get the victory this weekend. What's the mood ar- around campus or around the around town like in, in in you know in light of the fact that the semifinals are coming to their place? They have an opportunity, a real good opportunity, to win at home and go to the national championship game. Yeah, everyone's pretty excited. I know the student uh, student section has been, especially the past few years, has been going showing to games much more often. Uh, 
I know when I was there in 2012 was when I was a freshman, there was hardly anyone that would ever show up to show up to the game. But I guess that that's what happens when you have success. I think Oshkosh they have they've had a lot of they have had a fan bus that comes there for to bring students to the games because it's uh, kind of an off-campus uh, football stadium. So everyone's pretty excited about that. Keith, your thoughts? Well, you can't talk about this game without starting with the eight turnovers, and uh, not just the eight, but zero for uh, for Wisconsin Oshkosh, and uh, you know, in a in a thirty-four thirty-one game, uh, being negative eight on the turnovers uh, is. Certainly going to be a problem. St. Thomas also fell behind in this game. And what kind of surprised me beyond the turnovers, and by the way, as a small aside, this is the second time in the postseason. You mentioned it, I think, in the interview where, uh, you know, Coe and Monmouth uh, had that. Yeah. Monmouth had nine ton- turnovers, and Coe also had zero turnovers in that game. So it's not just the one team with a lot of tur- turnovers, but it's the other team playing a clean game. Um the uh, the thing that surprised me was was Sam Mankowski for for Oshkosh being able to to put up 184 receiving yards, three long touchdown catches, 46, 38, 32 yards, and uh, so it wasn't just the, the the defense getting it done with forcing the turnovers, but it was uh, it was a pretty balanced day offensively for for Oshkosh, and you know you don't see teams run the ball all that well on St. Thomas, and uh, Oshkosh ran for 169 yards pass for 237 st thomas itself was over 200 yards rushing so it wasn't quite the um, i don't know if some if people expected this one to be a a super defensive battle but i think uh i was surprised at how well oshkosh was able to move the ball even though um you know they they had the ball quite often and had some some shorter fields to work with I put my hand up when you said uh, if people expected this to be a defensive battle. I definitely did. I don't remember exactly what final score I, I put in uh, quick hits, but something along the 17-14 range. And I think I even kind of alluded to that on last week's podcast. Um, yeah, Oshkosh, uh, I mean, Devin Linsenmeyer ran the ball uh, exceedingly well. Uh, you know, Dylan Hecker really needed to grind out to get to his 72 yards, um, 25 carries for 72 yards, 23 of them on one carry. And, and the math doesn't, uh, isn't great in either of those, but obviously having Metkowski back is a, is a huge addition for them. And, uh, you know, going into the game against John Carroll, which we'll talk about, uh, coming up in a few minutes. Um, that's a, that's definitely a big boost, but, um, you know, Eric talked about how the, you know, the culture around football on the campus has changed. And obviously, you know, it's not uh, just now, right? Because uh, I think somewhere around uh, Nate Ware's sophomore year uh, back in 2010 or so, you could tell that uh, Oshkosh was going to start doing something with football. Uh, you know, they turned it over. They've, uh, you know, they've turned it over to a new quarterback and a new era. Uh, and this uh, program is, uh, has been continued to be successful, and it really makes things a lot more interesting in this part of the country. Yeah, I believe back in those Nate Ware days, there was an Around the Nation or a Road to Salem feature about how Oshkosh was the doormat for so long in, uh, in, in the WIAC. And it was, I think it was them in Platteville and, and Superior where they had football. Those were like the the bottom rung teams yeah. in uh, in the WIAC, and then you know now Oshkosh and Platteville are, are two of the best. A lot of that, of course, is due to Pat Cerrone, and I believe um, Pat told us back when when he got Nate, you know, getting Nate, and I think some of his brothers had played at at Oshkosh, and but but getting Nate was a big deal, and then they were able to recruit around him and build a program that went to a semifinal, lost to St. Thomas twenty eight fourteen, getting to avenge that loss probably felt pretty good 
um, because in you know in that area of the country, besides you know Wyack rivals, it's really the the Minnesota teams who are who are the teams standing in your way, and uh, a pretty huge win for Oshkosh. I, I think before we move completely on though with the Titans, we do have to recognize that St. Thomas, it, in spite of the eight turnovers um, and and falling behind twenty four seven. Falling behind 31-24 in this game, still stormed back to tie it at 31, and Oshkosh needed to uh, to to kick a field goal with two and a half minutes left to win this thing. Um, they got 154 yards rushing from a freshman backup running back Josh Parks, and uh, they blocked a punt. Uh, Nick Waldvogel, who had a great career, just like his brother Fritz had a great career, um, he had a, a great all-purpose game. Um, but St. Thomas this year was this was this the best St. Thomas team? It's so hard to tell w- with them because they're they're not. I don't. I just don't think they're flashy yeah. offensively. Everything they do is, is built around being solid. And and so I thought this was a team that could get back to the Stag Bowl, but uh, turned out uh, they they fell short. Yeah, well, I mean, if you go all the way back to losing Roberts early in the season, that that certainly doesn't help, right? That's the guy who's the uh, returning. Uh, player of the year um, that that makes it really difficult even though Parks and Treadle uh, you know did uh, Yeoman's work uh, kind of coming in and backing him up it, it just wasn't the same um, you know Fenske didn't really get uh, tested so much until this point in the season uh, we talked uh, I think a few weeks ago about the big run that St. John's had through the latter half of its conference schedule where they just were blowing the doors off of people defensively because teams were just not very good in the bottom half of the MIAC this year and and um, when I was kind of looking and planning out the schedule you know often and we've talked about it on the podcast before uh, I often end up at St. Thomas games because you know it's I don't know, it's like eight or nine miles from my house. It's ridiculously close. I did not go to a St. Thomas game uh, at any point during the course of its regular season schedule. The, the, uh, at St. Thomas, the game against St. John's was at St. John's, and, and nobody else that they had at home was, was that intriguing. It's just not interesting to see uh, you know, someone winning. Uh, I'm throwing random numbers out now, about like 70 to 3 or 63 to nothing or something like that. It just doesn't. I don't gain anything from that. And I'm not sure in the end, you know, maybe St. Thomas didn't uh, learn anything from those games either. Uh, didn't get tested in the first round of the playoffs. Kind of somewhat surprisingly didn't get tested in the second round of the playoffs. And when the test came, um, you know, they they turned it over a few times. Yeah, Pat, you make a, a pretty good point in that, you know, they play St. John's back on September 24th as a 33-21 game. They they rally very late to beat Concordia Moorhead back on October 8th. And then every other game after that, uh, they won pretty big, uh, at least by uh, 20 points. Uh, Bethel was close. And then from October 29th on, they didn't give up more than seven points to anyone until playing Oshkosh and giving up uh, 34. So, you know, we we gave Alfred a hard time for not playing a, a, a tough first two games and then having to play Mount Union in, in the quarterfinal round. Very similar thing it turned out for St. Thomas, beating Northwestern 43-0, beating Coe 55-6. And then all of a sudden you have to make that jump and level of competition to play uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh. And, and St. Thomas, in spite of their eight, eight turnovers, they, they, were, they were game, but, uh, but just weren't able to get it done. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you go back and compare, the only 
difference between the St. Thomas resume in 2016 and the Alfred resume in 2016 is that St. Thomas beat St. John's, which ended up being a second round playoff team. And Alfred did not have one of those wins in its regular season resume. For our last stop here in our trip around the national quarterfinals, we're going to check in with Brendan Gulick. Brendan is a uh, broadcaster for John Carroll University and an alum as well. Brendan, first of all, uh, as a guy who's been associated with uh, John Carroll for uh, quite some time, congratulations. This is a, an incredible run for the Blue Streaks right now. You know, I'll tell you what. Um, I, was, uh, I was traveling home from Whitewater yesterday, and I'm not going to lie, it crossed my mind that it wasn't really that long ago that John Carroll actually lost a road football game at Wilmington. And for those who follow D3 football, uh, that was not a very happy day for the John Carroll football program. And thankfully, that's in the rearview mirror. Uh, and to think that this program has uh, kind of turned around basically in 2012 when a group of seniors were sophomores and really started to change the culture of the program. And then, of course, when Tom Arth became the head coach in 2013, um, you know, a couple of close losses to Mount Union that have given people some faith that, you know what, we're not that far away, but still haven't gotten over that hurdle. Uh, and then, of course, this has just sort of been a dream season where you, you go on the road, you beat Mount Union, you win the conference title for the first time since 1994. No player on the John Carroll roster was alive the last time John Carroll beat Mount Union back in 1989. Uh, and then, of course, yesterday's game was pretty incredible. And the, the chance to go to Wisconsin Whitewater, a, a program that's had so much success and, and truly a classy group of people up there. We we're really grateful for the way they treated us in, in hosting. Um, as you said, it's a pretty special time and, and John Carroll is buzzing right now. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about uh, Tom Arth, I think, over the course of the week on the website. But I want to get your take on uh, him, first of all, as a, as a head coach. Um, you know, obviously the last couple years, uh, a different look, obviously, at the top. He's got plenty of experience with the program, of course. He was an offensive coordinator before he took over, and he was the quarterback when the team went to the national semifinals the last time around. This really is, over the course of the last couple years, Tom Arth's program. Uh, what do you, what's your sense? How do you feel about or what's your picture of how that has uh, it shaped itself over the course of the last couple of years? I actually asked Tom yesterday in the press conference after the game, and and knowing him the way I do, I know he's a really humble guy, but I tried to get something out of it. Um, you know, when I when I said to him, "Hey, look, the last time that this program was on this stage in the national semifinals, you were the quarterback, and you had a chance to actually be on the field, and now all of the work that you put in has gotten you back to that level." You know, is there some level of satisfaction in knowing that things are really moving in the right direction? How'd that kind of sit with you? And he was he was very humble in the way he answered the question. But you could tell right at the beginning there was a nice big smile on his face. And uh, it certainly gave the impression of we're moving in the right direction. And, and all of the recruiting efforts, some coaches that are currently at John Carroll and a few others that have moved on but still have a lasting impact with the program. Um, and, and truly the, the kinds of kids that he's brought to John Carroll – and uh, I, I think, you know, from a defensive perspective, what Brandon Staley's done with the defense has been unbelievable. But it has so much to do with the fact that these guys are, are high IQ football players and they can really understand some some complicated schemes. And uh, Tom will tell you, even though he was a quarterback and an offensive guy, he will give Brandon Staley credit till, you know, until you stop asking him because he knows that without the defense playing the way they have all year, 
the blue streaks wouldn't be in this spot. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool as an alum and as someone closely tied to the program to see a head coach who is so um, meaningful to what John Carroll has put together uh, on the football side of things. And, and he's, he's an extension for, you know, the entire university, just, He's a class act, and uh, you'll never hear anyone say anything poor about Tom. Coming into Saturday's game, one of the things we were looking at was how is that defense going to perform against the Whitewater offense? We knew Whitewater had uh, had some struggles on offense, but they seem to have been putting uh, things together over the last couple of weeks. you know, clearly you hold Whitewater to 228 total yards is just kind of a, a mind-boggling feat. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you saw yesterday. John Carroll and Whitewater played a game in the first half that was really interesting. You know, the Blue Streaks had to kick off, and on their first offensive possession, they couldn't get much going. They quickly got the ball back and marched up the field on an impressive drive. It was eight plays, 87 yards. They had a nice long pass play over the middle, a couple passes, a couple runs, and they found the end zone. So it gave them an early lead with some confidence. Um, But John Carroll made one mistake in the first half, and it was sort of an unfortunate one. Anthony Meglin threw a great pass over the middle to Nico James, and it hit him in the hands. He just couldn't handle it. And when the ball juggled up, it fell right to a defensive back, and uh, Whitewater was able to take over in great field position. They had first and goal inside the two, and it took them four tries to get in, but when you've got an offensive line as strong as as the Warhawks, more often than not, you're going to like your chances. So the game was tied at seven. And the final nine possessions of the first half were eight punts and then the blue streaks running out the clock before halftime. So you look at the halftime numbers and you're thinking, wow, this is a really defensive football game. This is kind of what we anticipated. Whitewater only completed three of 12 passes in the first half for 16 yards. But they did sort of what their bread and butter is. And they, they ran it 27 times as a team for 98 yards in the first half. If you look at the final numbers, Whitewater only ran the ball eight times for 14 yards in the second half because the defense for John Carroll really clamped down on, on, you know, that part of Whitewater's offense. And because the Blue Streak scored on their first three possessions of the second half, they kind of built that 24-7 lead. It sort of forced the Warhawks into doing some things that I think were out of character for them. Um, it was a, it was an impressive game by John Carroll, and I don't mean to take anything away from Whitewater. But, you know, I think people have not really put John Carroll on that, you know, one, two or three ranked team in the country level. They've they've sort of said, okay, well, you beat Mount Union on the road. The coaches poll still had Mount Union ranked ahead of John Carroll after the Blue Streaks won on the road. Um, Then John Carroll goes to Whitewater and, 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 you know, puts on a nice performance. So I think uh, I think people are really starting to see what this team's about. The other thing I want to ask you about before we uh, let you go is uh, the 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 kind of growth curve of Anthony Meglin, a guy who's a freshman starting quarterback. And obviously, you know, if, if you're an Oshkosh fan, you know, we've been preaching at this at you for a couple of weeks actually already, but uh, you know, the guy that uh, Oshkosh faced in the first week of the season was making his first, you know, ever start at the collegiate level, that sort of thing. How has he improved over the course of uh, what you've seen from him this season? I unfortunately was not able to see the Oshkosh game live, but I did see their second game against Baldwin Wallace at home. And BW can kind of be one of those games where you throw a lot of the stats out the window because of the rivalry. Um, it was not a great weather day. It was very windy and, and misting for a good portion of the game. But I have to admit, I was fairly unimpressed with Anthony Meglin. And I'm okay saying that because he laughs about it and tells you how awful he was during that game. 
and his progression throughout the season has been absolutely unbelievable. He kind of broke out when he played against Wilmington and had a whole bunch of touchdown passes. I think he finished with six in the game. Um, Anthony is incredibly conservative on offense, and he's not going to take a, a risk on a third down play because he really trusts his defense. He'll consistently pass to eight or nine different nice, uh, eight or nine different guys per game. He, he's just the kind of guy you want to lead your team and his leadership role, his maturity and his willingness to distribute the ball to whoever's open is really impressive. John Carroll utilized their tight end yesterday, Mark Banowitz, in that game, probably more than any other game all season. And he had three huge catches. Um, I just I, I think you're seeing a kid play quarterback who manages the game well, is able to make pretty much all the throws you need. And he's not going to turn the ball over. I know it sounds silly because he threw four interceptions against Wesley. One of them was deflected, and two of them were right into the teeth of a 25-mile-an-hour wind. Um, he, he is a, he's becoming a really good quarterback, and I think the Blue Streaks like what, uh, what their future might hold with him. I, I will throw you one more question before I let you go. Um, if, if you're thinking about the, the Blue Streaks defense, Who's the one guy, who's the rallying point, who's the heart and soul, who's kind of the emotional leader of that group? It's probably Mason McKenrick because of, of what he does defensively and his ability and as a linebacker to, to do different things. But I, I really think, Pat, that it's, it's a true team effort. John Carroll, as you guys put on a great article earlier, earlier last week, they will play 11 different defensive linemen. John Carroll's got four all-conference guys in their secondary, uh, and they rotate a whole bunch of linebackers in. And, you know, it's, it's just sort of the mantra of the team that really no one guy is bigger than anybody else. I mean, how many teams right now would you expect on the offensive side to have no receiver with more than 650 receiving yards and you're playing in your 14th game of the year upcoming? Yeah. They spread the ball around. It doesn't really matter who comes up with a big tackle. It doesn't matter who makes you know makes the pass deflection. Scott Eilerman as a corner yesterday, I thought he played his best game of the year. Javon Dawson played it extremely well. And the other two defensive backs had interceptions yesterday, Reese Armstrong and Michael Collins. So I, I think, honestly, they're rallying around the fact that they know collectively they're better than any one of them individually. Nonetheless, uh, regardless of who the uh, how the collective is, I think one of them is uh, at least someone we have to consider for North Region Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, but that's something that will uh, come out later on Monday afternoon. Keith, back to the John Carroll Whitewater game for a second. Um, you know, I I not at all surprised, right, that uh, John Carroll was capable of going to Whitewater and winning. I just was surprised by the margin of victory. I, I'll take that one step further or one step to the side because my thought is similar. I, I don't think any of us are surprised that that this Whitewater team could be beaten, right? We documented it throughout on the podcast throughout the year, switching quarterbacks, um, having you know injury troubles uh, with their top running backs. Although you know they were getting healthy uh, this this part of the the season, I think the real shock is. Or maybe not shock, but the surprise is that John Carroll def was defensively stout enough to limit that whitewater running game, um, which is, you know, basically become legendary since over the past 10 years or so. Uh, whitewater rushed for 112 yards, just 3.2 yards per carry, only 228 yards of total offense. Chris Nelson, the quarterback, didn't play at all 
yeah. didn't throw a pass anyway. Not not healthy, I guess. I'm not sure if he dressed. Again, it's really hard to tell sometimes. Yeah, we don't get very good uh, injury information in D3, and unless you're plugged in to, to folks in the program, sometimes guys go missing. Um, maybe this would be a good time to mention that TG, TJ Josie didn't play for, uh, <laughs> for, for Mary Harden Baylor as well. Right. Um, but, but anyway, back to Whitewater. Cole Wilbur, just 12 of 34 passing. Um, you know, he's there. He of the two quarterbacks, he was the passing quarterback, and uh, I'm sure they didn't bring him in to go uh, 12 or 34. So not their best day, but it was really that that defense by John Carroll that gave him uh, an opportunity. And then once uh, once in the third quarter, John Carroll was able to put together 11 play scoring drive to start the third quarter, uh, and then later in the third quarter, a seven play scoring drive to go up 21-7. The uh, the blue streaks really took control from that point, and uh, and Whitewater, despite having their passing quarterback in, they weren't able to throw their way back into the game. Before we move forward and talk about uh, John Carroll and Oshkosh, uh, Keith, uh, you know we got to wonder about Whitewater now, uh, eliminated in the semifinals last year in a you know a not pretty fashion, eliminated at home in the quarterfinals this year in a not particularly pretty fashion. I, I kind of think that. Uh, at least maybe not today, not you and I today, but at some point over the course of the uh, off season, we may have to uh, kind of revisit purple power status for these guys. Well, you know, two years is, is not a long time to be, you know, you don't get stripped of your, your, your purple power status. I don't think right away, especially when you're getting several rounds into the, the postseason. But um, it certainly makes you wonder how much difference Lance Leipold Brian Borland and all those guys that went off to to Buffalo made, um, but those teams sometimes got by, um, you know, by a hair as well. Uh, I think of that that Wartburg game where they had to rally for three late touchdowns uh, to to beat Wartburg in a it was a quarterfinal round. But they did rally, right? And and I'm saying that um, those the previous Whitewater teams, even the the dominant Purple Power teams weren't uh weren't completely flawless and these ones uh these last two they certainly haven't been exposed 36-6 at mountain union last year and then 31-14 to a another oac team uh in around earlier this year certainly it's, it's disappointing but i think it's disappointing for st thomas that a team that probably thought it could get back to the stag bowl and win it this time disappointing for linfield to have its uh, star quarterback and have what it thought was a pretty good team to go out in round two so, uh, so you know, that's kind of how, how it goes in the postseason. And the better you do, the higher you set the bar. And then, you know, if you don't attain that, that whatever you thought your, your, your program was capable of, you know, you, you do end up a little disappointed. I don't think uh, Whitewater thought they would lose a home game, a home playoff game in, uh, in the quarterfinal round. Keith, uh, neither you nor I was involved in the making of the last uh, conference ranking. Um, but, you know, just to kind of revisit that now, uh, uh, the OAC has put two teams in the national semifinals, which is not something that uh, we necessarily would have expected. Obviously, you know, ranking a conference is not just about the teams that make the playoffs or just the teams at the top. OAC slipped from fourth in our preseason one to eighth at the end of the regular season or the end of the non-conference season. Um, 
certainly they will bounce back somewhere in the middle. But uh, uh, I just felt it needed to, because that's one of the topics of discussion out in the out in the social sphere over the course of the last uh, forty eight hours or so. Just remind people that you know the bottom ha- half, the bottom eighty percent of the conference definitely counts here. Yeah, uh, but I think the argument uh, for someone other than Mount Union to to win playoff games is the one that's that's pushed the OAC up over over the years and it still holds water here. You know, a lot of times people like to to take shots at Mountain Union and say, oh well they don't play anybody. You know, they have nine conference games locked in. Well look you know, look at how right now they have a rival in their conference that has uh beaten Wesley in the playoffs gone on the road now and beaten Whitewater and has a chance to go up and uh, and beat a WIAC team for the second week in a row. So uh, certainly scores pretty big points for the OAC as a whole as far as their quality of football is concerned. And let's talk about that game, of course. Uh, this is, uh, as we mentioned at the top, this is a rematch of a game that uh, took place back in week one. Uh, a lot of things have changed since week one. Anthony Meglin was making his first ever collegiate start back in week one and now Oh, there's a cliche about freshmen and sophomores. I think that's mostly a basketball thing. But uh, you know, this is a uh, this is going to be a, a different game, I would assume. Uh, we also talked about uh, Oshkosh not having uh, Dylan Hecker in the game the first time around. So there's a, a lot of things that are different. Uh, I assume that they might watch the film of the first game a little bit, but I'm not sure it's anywhere near as instructive as the last three games that they'll get from the playoffs here. Yeah, I mean, teams are very different in in week one than week 14 and 15. That's understood. I I think, though, the burden is going to be on John Carroll's offense, I I think, to produce a little bit more. And even though they scored 31 uh, against Whitewater, just 305 yards of total offense, uh, about half passing, half rushing, which is nice balance. But you'd like to see uh, over the course of a game. Uh, a little bit more offense than that, uh, 4.4 yards per play as well. So um, you add in the week before where they scored seven points in regulation, had to go to overtime to beat Wesley, yeah. uh, two overtimes actually to beat him 2017. I think they're going to need a little bit more out of their offense because if you look at what uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh did against maybe you know one of the best defenses in the country putting up 34 points on St. Thomas. I don't think you can expect to go in there and hold them down to 13, 17. You know, you may need to score 24 or more to to win on Saturday. And this is still, you know, pretty um pretty deep in the playoffs for these programs. I mean, obviously we talked about the fact that Oshkosh was in the national semifinals in 2012. You know, none of those kids are still around, right? This is a, this is a four full years later. Um, this is a, a big stage uh, coming to them on their campus. And for John Carroll, for that matter, um, this is something that kind of segues into uh, the next topic we're going to talk about. But I, I wonder how much John Carroll as a team feels like because they won the OAC that they should be playing this game in their stadium and therefore might have, uh, might have the ability to come in with a little chip on its shoulder here. Yeah, I personally, I felt like that was a stretch. I don't see what you can possibly come up with that trumps um, a head-to-head victory. Yeah, earlier in the right? season, you you take that away, and then we can start chopping up numbers and coming up with different criteria. You know, um, when it when it came to playoff selection, Oshkosh had the advantage in almost every category, or they were even with John Carroll. They both were nine and one. Oshkosh had a stronger strength of schedule. They had they played three games against regionally ranked opponents and were two and one in those games, as opposed to to John Carroll being one and one. Um, they they pretty much had 
every advantage, but there was a head-to-head game. Who knew at the time that this was going to uh, resurface as a uh, national semifinal? We just thought it was a pretty interesting week one matchup. Right. I think I remember, too, when we first uh talked about this i'm not sure if we talked about it on the podcast or just you and i chatted about it but remember thinking what an interesting game that's going to be and already i'm already thinking about um you know when i need to book my flight to cleveland to get the week one rematch of the national semifinals that will open the 2017 season but uh before we get to that point the reason why i i uh, kind of delved into this question is because it was the rage of uh northeast ohio small college football twitter over the course of the last uh, uh the 24 hours on saturday night and then into most of the day sunday because here's the thing um yeah you cited all of the things that the ncaa actually looks at right uh, the team's record, uh, certainly the head-to-head result, which is a huge. You have that on the board at this point. Uh, strength of schedule with a significant advantage to Wisconsin Oshkosh. The fact that John Carroll won an automatic bid is not something that's part of this discussion. Um, the NCA knows that not all AQs are created equal. So when they take this and break it apart, what they're doing is they're looking at the two teams head-to-head, and that's basically all there is to it. They, you know, these teams also were already seated, uh, where they were seated second in their brackets uh, a piece. So that's already a wash. And, and when you get to that, then all you're doing is looking at how those two teams line up on the board against each other, just like we talked about on Selection Sunday with all of those teams on the bubble. They do the exact same process with the exact same criteria. And that is all that's considered, not uh, the fact that John Carroll won a conference title and Wisconsin Oshkosh did not win a conference title. The committee could do us all a favor, though, and sort this out beforehand so that oh. we don't have to wait from the point of the games ending on Saturday to, um, to 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 find out Sunday at noon. Now, I know the committee does sort this out beforehand, yes. but they don't, they don't reveal this to us. Right. So the rest of us are kind of left parsing these numbers and, and going through different things to try to figure out who it's going to be. It was not a difficult parse. The difficult part was dealing with all of the uh, John Carroll fans who – uh, decided that it was our fault that this was the, that this was the way this was done. I would love to have uh, the ability to make those decisions, but in fairness, I would not have made uh, any different decision than what the committee did. In fact, even the order of the games was exactly the same as I would have done it because you don't want to have the Northeast Wisconsin game at night if you can avoid it when you can have the Texas game at night. Fine points all around. So uh, that was our Twitter question of the week. I know we're pretty deep into this podcast, but, you know, there's some important stuff going on. So um, hopefully we have uh, given you some uh, extra insight here as uh, we get you this uh, December 5th podcast uh, here at week 14. Uh, I mentioned that all region teams will come out on our website here on Monday afternoon. Uh, If you don't know already, we always announce our All-America teams as part of the Stag Bowl pregame show. So you can look for those uh, a little more than a week from now. uh, And we'll uh, announce those in the run-up to a kickoff of Stag Bowl 44. Uh, When you can find more information about Stag Bowl 44 at uh, SalemChampionships.com. And thanks to the City of Salem for their sponsorship of the Around the Nation podcast. But uh, Keith, before we we wrap this up, um, you know, uh, Gillardi Trophy voting ends uh, at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. The uh, the fan voting ends. Also, by the way, you know, your voting and my voting ends at the same time. I just got my ballot in like probably about a half hour before we sat down to record. Don't forget to vote. Uh, I won't forget. I have had a pretty good number one in mind. 
uh, the entire time, but I haven't filed my ballot yet because I wanted to a give the you know players who are still alive an opportunity to uh, to move up. But uh, I, I got to sort out kind of two through nine still, so uh, two through ten, I guess. Um, yeah, Do that's you, uh, all I have to say about that. I was going to say I I'm not going to reveal who I'm voting for because I have to uh, I have to interview these four guys, the four guys who are the finalists. So. I want to be able to maintain my neutrality as much as possible. Uh, you're not going to be there, so who's your guy? You don't have to say. Um, I'm sorry. I'm putting you on the spot here. Yeah, but uh, I guess I don't mind. Uh, I've I been leaning towards Sam Riddle the entire time. I think, um, you know, they're, they're, first of all, there was not really a, a, a no-brainer uh, this season, someone that ran away with it. And there were some, certainly some guys who played their way uh, onto our radar, Trevor Heitland is, is a good example of that. Someone who um, just had put up some eye-popping numbers in big games this season, and then you started to have to take note of of that person. But also, I think you know what Sam had uh, has like been or gone through as a as a um, you know, Division three athlete. You know, raising a family and quarterbacking a, a national. Uh, playoff caliber team uh going through the the, the situation with parker moore um all that kind of you know make makes you makes us realize what a well-rounded guy he is but um but he also earned every bit of it with his play too the numbers are just silly and so in the absence of of, of someone even more outstanding than that and of course all 10 of the Gallardi trophy guys are always outstanding players usually outstanding people um that would be the direction that I lean, but uh, I I like to take it up to you know about the last hour. So I try to file it. Uh, worst case, it's due noon Central Time. Worst case, I would file it at noon Eastern Time. <laughs> um, you know, the one thing that the one intriguing thing about this uh, listing, Keith, that, that uh, has always been kind of sitting here, and we haven't had a lot of opportunity to talk about it. Six of these guys play defense, and those you know defensive players generally don't do very well in these kind of awards uh we obviously have you know it's it's much discussed about the heisman trophy but it's been fairly similar for the Gallardi trophy as well yeah it, it's tough because you just don't have numbers that stand out and i do think p- people are kind of predisposed to um thinking quarterback running back maybe wide receiver kick returner type guy uh for one of these awards that yeah a lot of them are yeah just best quarterback running back award but um when you get a chance to sit down and watch players play um you know we've had times where certainly the most dominant guy has been a defensive player uh i remember there's a year um you know Derek blanchard was was a great candidate for the gallardi trophy i believe that was the justin beaver year and so he didn't he didn't uh, have a real good chance of winning but he was a mountain union offensive lineman ryan kleppe was an outstanding player from uh wisconsin whitewater on the defensive line Rocky Myers won the won the Gallardi Trophy as a Wesley strong safety, and that was before Wesley really uh, ascended. So there there have been some guys, uh, outstanding defensive players that that caught our attention. But uh, but yeah, a lot of times it's a sort of best most outstanding offensive player award. The uh, the top four vote getters will be in Salem. We'll see them on uh, Wednesday in Salem, the fourteenth. Uh, 
of December. Uh, if you're not in Salem, you can watch the broadcast on d3sports.com. We'll have a live broadcast for you, and you will find out who wins the Gilardi Trophy uh, at the same time we do, or depending on the YouTube lag, uh, maybe you know 15 seconds after we do. So uh, keep a, keep that in mind. That is still coming. Uh, and, of course, uh, we have coverage all week of what's coming uh, here in the national semifinals. As we mentioned, Keith is expecting to go to the uh, Mary Hart and Baylor Mountain Union game. I will be at the uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh John Carroll game. Um, and we'll see what else we can uh, manage to finagle in terms of game coverage and pregame coverage that day. So keep an eye out for uh, that sort of thing. Um, all region awards coming out on Monday afternoon. And uh, Road to Salem features all week as we get you up to, gosh, the national semifinals. It seems like just yesterday, Keith, we were doing the August podcast or maybe even the July or April podcast. And here we are. Uh, we're wrapping up week 14 and looking for week 15. Yeah, I don't know if it seems like just yesterday to me, but <laughs> it certainly um, has been a, a maybe the best postseason um, in in I don't know if in history, but definitely in, in recent memory, there's been great games in each round, great finishes, memorable moments, you know, stuff that will that we will remember long beyond, you know, after we forget the scores. You know, I'm referring to the last play at at St. John's Platteville, uh, the overtime games, um, all this, you know, Mountain Union having to go on the road. I think there's just been a lot of great stories, and now somebody new is going to break through to the Stag Bowl. And, uh, and and maybe someone someone old will break through as well. And this was the Around the Nation podcast, number 165, for the week of December 5th, 2016. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of that coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it. That will help other football fans find it. Thanks for following Division Three Football on D3Football.com. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Highlights courtesy Mary Harden Baylor Athletics. And thanks to our guests, Jeff Sapanik, Brendan Gulick, and Eric Bookinger for their time on this edition of our show. And also, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Catch us every week from now through December 17th, then monthly in the offseason. And always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and Instagram posts. And no rollout this week. We got to get out. That's right. It's almost 4 a.m. <laughs>